Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out all the very many things that we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. This week, we've got a slightly early edition of Reviewing the News, where Cody Townsend and I go through a number of the stories and topics that either caught our interest or caught the interest of some of you, and you wrote us to make sure some of these things were on our radar. So thanks to all of you who did submit certain headlines and topics for us to discuss, and special thanks for the really thoughtful mountain town advice questions that were submitted. We go over just two of them this week because they both warranted a good amount of time. And I think they are topics and questions that probably will resonate with a whole lot of you out there. So thank you for those mountain town questions and relationship questions. Now, one thing Cody and I did not get to talk about on air because we recorded this conversation this past Saturday morning, but Western States 100 was going down, and through the rest of the day after we finished this recording, Cody and I were texting back and forth a lot about the race, but I want to take a minute to just give a shout out to all of the Western States 100 racers and just say a huge Congratulations to Tom Evans and Courtney DeWalter on their victories. And special shout out to Courtney for setting just an incredible new course record. Courtney is the best. Cody and I are unabashed fans. And it was so cool to see her do what she does and in the way that she does it. So shout out to her and to Tom and to anyone courageous enough to toe the line at Western States. And finally, just before we dive into the news here, I want to remind you all about our Blister Plus membership and injury insurance. I am delighted to report that we are seeing more and more of our personal friends, the people that we ski and mountain bike with and boat with here in Crested Butte, Well, they're signing up for this Blister Plus injury insurance, and honestly, it is a huge relief to me because I know how devastating it can be, first, to see our friends get wrecked physically, but then have to deal with all of the often vast expenses that come with these injuries. So with our Blister Plus coverage, you get all the full benefits of a Blister membership, plus $25,000 worth of injury insurance that will have you covered anywhere in the world. And if you are a citizen of any country in the world, if you get injured while you are skiing or running or trail running or boating or climbing or commuting to work on a bike... Or maybe you're still getting in some late season split boarding or snowboarding, etc., etc. The coverage works whether or not you have insurance, but if you do have insurance but still have a high deductible, well, 
This Blister Plus injury insurance will mean that when you get hurt doing one of the many covered activities, you are going to pay zero dollars because this injury insurance is going to cover your deductible. I was meeting with a good friend of mine yesterday afternoon. We were talking about this program. I asked him what his deductible was, and he told me he didn't know. So I sort of yelled at him because I sometimes do that. I told him to go home and check it. He did. And then he immediately signed up for this Blister Plus membership and injury insurance. And he went and rode bikes today. And now I know that if anything happened to him, he's fine. I haven't actually heard from him yet today, so I'm hoping he is fine. But anyway, this Blister Plus injury insurance provides a lot of peace in mind both for you if you get injured, but honestly, also for your friend sets and the people who care about you. So we will include a link to that in the show notes of this episode. Please, please check it out. Get clear on the details of what you will personally currently have to pay if you do get injured and see if this injury insurance, this Blister Plus program that we've created would help you. All right, and now let's review some news and try to sneak it in before certain babies wake up from naps. Here we go. Well, Cody, tis the time again to review some news, but let's start with your own news. What you been up to? Well, um, you know, the thing I kind of was like posting about and talking about and then went silent for a long time and then came back and then put up <laughs> one cryptic post about it. And then now I'm uh, about to do a vacation, a much needed vacation with my family. But I was uh, went up to Alaska and sat in a hotel room for two and a half weeks and then flew home. Um, we were going for Mount St. Elias and uh, didn't even step foot on the mountain. Wow. Yeah, it was one of the most anticlimactic ways to end a very good season and then like pretty incredible just for snow, for pow, for travel. Uh, Baffin was one of the best trips of my life, but then going for St. Elias, which I had this really good feeling about it. I'm like, man, I've filled with confidence. I think it's going to work this time. We didn't even get on the mountain. A lot of different things, logistical issues. Um, We were about to fly onto the mountain, but we literally had no escape plan. Like no one that could take us off the mountain. We had no context. So we're like, we're going in and we are either 150 miles via land to the nearest town or 75 miles and crossing a fjord. Um, to the next town. So we're like, we don't know how to get out of here. So we had to postpone. Then the weather came in and it just, the weather never stopped. I mean, it's been just one of the the wettest, most chaotic uh, win- uh, springs in Southeast Alaska. I think I saw for a two week period while we were up there, 800% of average precipitation, including a 99th percentile precipitation event, which if we were on the mountain for it would have been oof. So, I mean... Yeah, that's the way she goes. Um, it was definitely a letdown to go all the way up there and not even, never even put ski boots on. But eh, that's the way she goes. I don't think I knew that you were like just downtimed out. 
I now feel slightly offended that I wasn't hearing from you more. Well, for about a week and a half, I had almost no cell service and almost no Wi-Fi. <laughs> okay. So um, I would okay. get it. I would check the weather about every hour and I would because I would walk to this one little certain spot and I could get a little <laughs> signal and I could it'd take like two minutes to upload a web page. And then I'd try and go to the next one. It would take like almost like 45 minutes to check all the different models and check everything and see. And then I would sit down and uh, we had direct TV. So we just we zoned out watching TV. I watched a lot of office reruns and that was it. It was like, it was kind of brutal and just sat in the rain. I went for a lot of runs in the rain um, that just to clear huh. your head, but I was a little bit anticlimactic. And then like I put a cryptic post out there and even my friends were like, oh, they must have sent it. And it was like so quick. And I was just like, I don't know what to say about this. Like, I was just kind of like, uh, yeah, we didn't even step foot on the mountain. What didn't like I flew to Alaska and flew home. Good, good expedition. Packed a lot of gear, spent a lot of time, spent an inordinate amount of unnecessary money on going up there and coming home. So, but yeah, um, now I'm just getting ready to go to Mexico and get a much needed vacation for Elise and myself and bring an indie along and yeah, go get some sun before jumping right back into the production world as soon as we get home. Yeah. I think I can speak for all listeners of this podcast that we're pretty upset given our whole, you know, what we're reading and watching segment. You had all this time and all you did was watch office reruns. Oh, I was, I will say I've been reading a lot of books. I did crank through some books. Okay. So, um, okay. but yeah, okay. well, th but there was no Wi-Fi. I couldn't like download a bunch of stuff onto my like iPad and watch, I don't know, the succession for the third time. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we, that's what we actually wanted. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, fair enough. Well, I'm hoping that you're at least coming with a book or two at the end of this conversation that you can share with us. But um, Office Reruns. Okay. A very good show still. Still so funny, though. I. It's not. I'm not, I'm not, not like yeah. a huge. Yeah. Mm, it's fine. Like, it's fine. I get it, I think. But. Right. Well, let's get into uh, let's get into some positive news. So we're not going to have Jonathan as a downer and shitting on stuff that everybody <laughs> likes. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. We also should say at the top, this is, uh, if, if Cody sounds a little antsy, it's because we're very much recording this in the hopes that Indy doesn't wake up from nap time Yeah, before Elise leaves. We have like a couple of other variables that we're, we're balancing here. So you're right. I should stop wasting, wasting time. Okay. So I realized that apparently I like doing this, which is... Talk about some clean tech energy news that honestly is probably pretty far off, but I still find it really exciting and encouraging. And I definitely don't know the most about this, but I don't know. That's like my, that's like the thing I do uh, every time we do this. And um, so we will include a, an article on this and you can find a lot of, of information on this if you do a search. But basically, scientists are now testing how satellites could collect power from the sun and send clean electricity to Earth. And they're actually starting to get some encouraging results. This sounds like absolute wonderful magic that would solve massive problems if our beloved scientists 
continue to figure this out. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I've got. Yeah, no, I mean, it does sound it. It does sound like magic. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to tell me about this article? Because I didn't read it because uh, I don't have a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, nor even my little sneaky, maybe quasi legal ways to get around paywalls. It didn't even work for it. So can you tell me more? I mean, I, I, will, I will say so. Yes, Jonathan, you led with talking about how you always bring these up. And like uh, um, yeah. we have this document that we share. And yeah. I will say for all the audience that I always come to the with like very outdoor specific news and try and have a topic that we can have takes upon. And then like Jonathan always just throws in these things about tech. And I'm like, I don't know what to, yeah. to okay. There's no, there's no take I can have about this. Um, maybe it's cause you're better than us and you, you're just like super focused on the future. Um, or maybe, yeah, you know, you're a bit arrogant and you just think like, the, <laughs> wow. this is all I read is about the, the, our future. <laughs> You just accuse me of being arrogant. That's okay, because I'm coming at you at the end of this conversation about a take of yours from a few months ago. So you get your shots okay. in now. You're going to need to. No, I mean, look, obviously, we talk a lot about the state of the world and pollution and climate change and all these massive issues. And I think, actually, one of the things I like about our conversations here are that we go quite micro on some things and then we zoom out a lot and go pretty macro and I um I still think that it is I mean just personally exciting to me like yeah we got a lot of work to do and a lot of steps to take in the in the near term to continue to try to create uh you know a better situation for I don't know human life on this planet but I also think looking at some of these things that are are not going to happen tomorrow, but that are in fact being worked on where results are coming through, I think those things can continue to spark optimism. You know, like, let's keep going, folks. Like, it isn't just darkness out there, you know? And I, I think those are some of the reasons I love bringing some of this stuff up. No, and I agree. We 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 get absorbed with the negative news because we that's what we read and that's what media. Like I always go back to like people harp on media for putting certain stories out there. They're like, well, click on the, those stories because they do put these out. And but we tend as humans tend to look at the negative ones. We dive into the negative ones. Like right now, when you're looking at what's happening to the Atlantic Ocean and the absolute like anomalous heat wave that is hitting the Atlantic Ocean, it's really scary. Like every single weather um, meteorologist and weather scientist and climatologist out there is looking at the Atlantic Ocean right now going like, we don't know what the fuck is going to happen. And this has never happened. And this could be really bad. So it's really good to continue to look for good news out here. The one thing I'm like really interested about this is like, uh, you know, it so goes back to just kind of our like inability to do things in America, whether that's on the governmental level or whether that's just on a private level. There's just these things that are so inefficient and like here we're having to go all the way to like space. Is this a way to get cut through red tape? Because we, you know, like building solar farms is really, really difficult. Building wind farms can be really difficult. Every single thing seems to get held up like um I've seen all these proposals for um, like 
the, there's a massive surge right now because of the Inflation Reduction Act and permitting for building green energy solutions, whether it's wind farms, solar farms, hydro, hydro kind of hydroelectricity, all these kinds of things that are coming up, but they're all being held up um, for various reasons. It's not all just because of government bureaucracy. Some of it's for private funding and whatnot, but like the stuff could be built and it could be built tomorrow, but they're just still, we're so inefficient on things, whether that's lawsuits from environmentalists and not saying environmentalists are wrong in suing to stop these things in certain instances, it makes sense. Um, but I'm just saying in general, things get held up. So it's kind of astounding to me from a macro picture that like, you know, maybe is this a way to cut through red tape of like, okay, we, we're going to fill the the solar system with satellites that beam our electricity so we don't have to build anything on our own our earth, like solar farms and wind farms. Hmm. Let me just read a couple paragraphs from this article. The author is Corey S. Powell. And uh, yeah, this was published in the Wall Street Journal. On January 3rd of this year, a team at Caltech launched the Space Solar Power Demonstrator, an orbiting suite of experiments to test key components for space-based solar power. It switched on in February and has begun sending back encouraging early results. Quote, People are realizing this isn't just science fiction, says Ali Hajimiri who is an electrical engineer at Caltech and one of the project leaders on the demonstrator. There may be, he says, a pathway to make this a reality. Other related efforts are also gaining momentum. The European Space Agency is drawing up a blueprint for a possible European space solar network. The China Academy of Space Technology has announced plans for a power beaming satellite prototype, by 2028. And the article goes on to talk about some other initiatives. So <clears throat> I don't know, the sun, biggest source of energy around. Um, I'm intrigued. And, you know, look, there are obviously questions about, you know, if we're going to get solar farms or wind farms large enough to really scale out that that's massive and takes up a ton of land and all the rest. And I don't know, it seems like this, while all technologies seem to have their pros and cons. This would be something that theoretically wouldn't have to have the same demands on land. So I don't mm -hmm. know. I'm just trying to, Cody, I'm trying to keep you up on what's going on in the Thank world. Thank you. Like, yeah, because I don't yeah, read the Wall Street Journal. I, I have plenty of subscriptions. That's one of the ones I don't. <laughs> By the way, speaking of news, right? Because I think that's a, that's a relevant thing. Like, I... I subscribe to the New York Times. I subscribe to the Wall Street Journals. In terms of sort of quote unquote mainstream news, those are the outlets that I try to check most frequently. And then there's a bunch of, you know, other subscriptions beyond that. But I mean, those are kind of my main go to, just in case people are wondering or something. But. Mm -hmm. Um, those are kind of mine. Yeah, totally. I'm in the same boat. I mean, New York Times, I think, is as good as it gets for the macro viewpoint and good good journalism. Um, you know, there's everyone's going to have their own takes on it and whatnot. But, well, New York Times has generally been really good. I also subscribe to the Washington Post and The Economist um, instead of Wall Street Journal. The Economist is my version of, of that, I guess, more the financial. And uh, I like the, the global picture that The Economist brings quite often. So, um, yeah, pay for news because it's important well and another one 
we should also mention is the Colorado Sun. One, because our guy, Jason Blevins, I mean, that's literally where we come up with so many of the stories that we talk about on reviewing the news. But that's the one that I... I go to for more of the outdoor stuff and for news in Colorado. And then if there's one more I'd mention is high country news. Yeah. Solar power from space, Cody, get with the program. Cool. Well, let's talk about some other uh, kind of maybe space age power. Um, I wanted to get into the world of FKTs um, because I saw, Mm. I don't know if you saw the news, but um, Jack Coonsley um, smashes the Denali FKT, uh, according to a headline from Explorer's Web. And it made quite a lot of news. I think, um, you know, this FKT, meaning fastest known time when it comes to Denali's become a little bit of a thing. And just in general, I would say in like the ski, running and alpinism and mountaineering world fkts have become quite a thing um and they're rising in popularity in general um i feel like as of 10 years ago we never even knew about fkts and now within the last five years like fkts are making headlines everywhere um even so much that there's websites devoted to tracking them and you can go look up certain fkts for a number of routes um and for Kunzle, um, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, like uh, he ended up doing the Denali from base camp, which is essentially where you land the plains on the Kalitna Gate Glacier. You descend down about 500 feet um, and then go all the way up to 20,000 feet to the summit of Denali. And he did it round trip in, well, let's say, 10 hours and 14 minutes. And he beat Killian Journey's um, time by 90 minutes. So more than anything i just uh want to talk about fkts and this rise and the the rise of it in our sport and i don't know what do you think about fkts in general i think you and i are going to come at this from two pretty different perspectives so what i what i love about it is just the openness and the creativity that it can encourage and you know look in football There's a college championship, there's a Super Bowl, there's a couple of like forums where you can even go do that thing, you know, (laughs) and it it all kinds of needs to be quite official and and all of that. And I I love this aspect of of running and hiking and climbing that people can just make up interesting projects and then go tell some folks, this is what I did and maybe you go have a stab at it yourself. So that is, I think, a very um, purist and almost naive take because that is not exactly where I think FKT culture is today. But that's the part that I like about it is the creativity, the lack of boundaries and constraints on this stuff. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, one, I think we're seeing the rise of FKTs because as much as I've kind of made fun of it um, and fun of this person, I did it in the second episode of the 50, um, Reinhold Mesner has a quote is like, all the great firsts have already been done. 
So, you know, we had this 20 to 30 year run, um, I would say in the 60s and 70s and then up into the 80s where all these major first ascents and first ascents happened. And then all those ones, those very prominent peaks, those very prominent lines, they've all kind of gotten skied. So now it's all if you're trying to do firsts, you're looking into obscure corners, lines that aren't as prominent, mountains that aren't as prominent. They're hard and difficult ways. So now people are like, okay, well, how can I do it the fastest? And We've obviously seen the rise of ultra running, just running in general, fitness knowledge. And so it kind of comes along that this is a natural progression of the sport. Um, I personally am actually surprisingly kind of a fan of FKTs just because I think it's fun to like laugh at thinking how fast someone went up and down a mountain. Like when Jack Coonsley did like, I don't even know the time and the time doesn't even matter, but like, I know he did Shasta and it was the fastest up and down on Shasta and he was averaging 3,500 feet per hour to get to the summit, which is just bananas. So I like, I love just laughing at like, oh my God, these guys are beasts. Like I will never be an FKT guy. I'm you know, 6'2", 200 pounds and, you know, <laughs> trained as a as a free rider forever. I didn't really get into aerobics until the last few years. So it's like something that's so far off from me that I kind of actually, I like laugh at it and enjoy it. The one thing I will say, and you kind of almost pointed to this, and this is something that Greg Hill said to me, um, the culture that is kind of starting to develop with it is getting a bit competitive and they're starting to be more prominence um, with getting these FKTs. There's more media attention to it. There's more kind of uh, sponsor attention. There's just sort of more attention in general. And with that can come controversy, um, which is something that I don't like. Um, something like I've seen within this world is people starting bitching back and forth about, oh, this way, this person did it with this kind of things. This They did it this way. And you just like, to me, it's like, who fucking cares? And Greg said this to me. He's like, every FKT has an asterisk and it should. Like what you're saying is this fun, creative, inventive kind of way to do it. That's what's fun about it. When you start to bring this like really like ego chasing, very competitive mindset, putting down other people because, you know, I don't know, they didn't bring water with them. So they had someone halfway up the mountain with water. And then you're like, that doesn't count. Um, the FKT website has like a list of rules of what they count. And you're just like, you know what, like, let's not bring rules rules into this. Let's just be like, hey, went up there and did it and be super own, uh, open and honest about what you did. Like what I really liked about Jack's post when he first came down and he did it, you could tell that he comes from that sort of mindset. I think that I have that everything has an asterisk and you just have to be open and honest about it. He like his first post was just like thanking every single person that helped him along the way, describing the style in which he did it and every little detail through it so that you have a full like appraisal of like what happened. And you're like, Hey, I did it in 10 hours and 14 minutes that way. If someone does it faster and they say like, Oh, I did this. I didn't bring my water. It's not that like, 
that person's doesn't count. It's just like, I did it faster and this was that. And you go, cool, asterisk. Everything, every FKT should have an asterisk on it because the only way to properly compete against another human and say like, I did it was faster than you is in a race format where people are on that day racing in the exact same conditions on the exact same course together. Um, Because the thing is with the mountains, like, you know, I know on Denali, uh, I believe it was last summer, there was the Slovak Direct and it was in the alpinism world that's a pretty prominent line. And uh, Steve House um, in the 90s was renowned for kind of changing alpinism because he and a few others did the Slovak Direct in a single push. And I think it was like 62 hours and it was just seen as groundbreaking because they went super light and they went super fast and super hard. Uh, Last year, Two teams ended up beating that, um, getting it around 24 hours, which was bananas. But the the second team uh, went like a few days after the first team did and broke their record because, well, there was a boot back. And the spirit that I saw between those two parties was really positive. They're like, yeah, like we followed your boot pack. So it made it quicker for us. We follow, you know, followed your track. That saved us time. And the other was like, yeah, good on you. So to me, as long as that spirit is a part of the FKT world of being like really transparent, really open and really honest and just not even like, hey, these are the rules. Just be like, no, every single one has an asterisk. That's the way it is because we're in an uncontrolled environment with a ton of variables. And I want to just like laugh and be like, this is amazing that someone could go from 7,000 feet to 20,000 feet and back in 10 hours. Like that's bananas. And to take it more seriously than that is the one thing I get like nervous about as you start to see people taking additional risks that are completely unnecessary as they start to do stupid things, start to call out other people, just create like a toxic culture in this world. So that's the one thing I'm like cautious about it. It's why I'm a fan of Jack, because I see he brings a lot of humor in that spirit there. There's some other people that I've seen within the world that I can't even name, nor that I would, but that bring that kind of like very rules-based culture and very controversial culture that I I don't really like. So yeah, that's my take. Mm -hmm. I like it. And I I think too about what I kind of hear you saying is like sharing more of the story sharing more of the details, thanking people, you know, that to me gets back to and, and, and helps sort of move back to that kind of original spirit that I was talking about where there is that creativity and it's excitement and, Hey, I went out and I had this adventure, you know, and, and when you bring all of those unique elements, because like you said, every FKT, this is now we can get into, Heraclitus, right? You never step in the same river twice type of thing. And it's like that then brings it back, I think, with those details in the story, brings it back to like, you know, this person went and had a grand adventure and we can marvel at how quickly they did it and we can learn about more of the details. But I think that reinforces the, the spirit of the creativity and the adventure rather than like, getting it to be more and more of like a result, like who won formula one or the super bowl this year. Like that's a different thing, you know, hundred percent. And that's a, if you want to compete against 
people in a rules-based format that is very structured and that is free from controversy, then you have to compete against those people in the same environment on the same day. It's the only way. Um, Otherwise, to me, it's like, you know, it's like a unpure form of racing in FKT, whereas a pure form is to race against other people. And that's the way it goes. So, um, but I do, I mean, again, as a, as a whole, like I go to the mountains for different reasons and trying to move up to them as fast as possible. Um, I do like, I have my way that I enjoy mountains the way that I want to ski things. I'll go up and down them and whatnot. It does not involve FKTs, but I am a fan of it because I think it's kind of cool. Um, as long as we preserve that spirit. Um, and yeah, if, if the listeners, I would just say, if you see those kind of comments, if you see that kind of stuff of like rules, this doesn't count, just like slough it away and just think like literally every FKT out there has an asterisk, um, which was Greg Hill. And he, you know, he's been one to do a lot of those. And he's just, he's a, one of my kind of mentors and people I look up to when it comes to that kind of stuff. And, you know, if someone like him, who's said a lot of FKTs himself is saying every single one has an asterisk, then, then you tend to believe them. Mm-hmm. Where are we going next? Uh, we're going into a topic that we've kind of avoided, um, because this popped up kind of a while ago, um, and we kind of stayed away from it just to see how it plays played out a little bit. Um, but Jason Blevins, our favorite journalist from the Colorado Sun, who we just mentioned, um, has a headline, Colorado-based company accused of cultural appropriation over native-inspired designs products. Astus Mittens sees backlash over its indigenous designs, says it's working to hire native artists. So this involves uh, some friends of ours um, being Connor Ryan and Len Nessifer, um, who we've talked about um, both one for, you know, some of the good things they're doing within the industry and then two replacing me, you know, when I'm going to places like Baffin yeah. Island. So um, exactly. it's a, you know, it's a complex topic, but it essentially started with Astus Mittens making mittens and selling them to kind of a high-end clientele, I think like Veil, um, with like very, very native designed artwork, not designed by actual natives, but actually like from native designs. And um, I would suggest everyone just read the article, um, take their own take from it. And what I mainly wanted to discuss is like just the difference between appropriation and appreciation. Um, Because I think we've gotten to a place sometimes where it feels like a little nerve wracking to want to like buy something with the native designs on it. But knowing where it comes from and how it was made and or designed is the critical differentiation between between the two. Um, so I don't like I guess my main thing to get across is the, the context to fill in for the readers in knowing Connor, knowing Len, um, having gone through this with my own company is that appropriation is kind of like theft. It doesn't matter necessarily who did it. It's just, you're stealing it. Like in my opinion, when we started Arcade, um, we've had 15 different ripoff brands that literally stitch for stitch, take your your product and make it and sell it. And it it sucks. Like there's no other way to put, a, put it of being like, hey, that's literally our design. 
and you're making money off that. And people tell you like, oh, in imitation is a serious form of flattery. You're like, no, like they're stealing. And appropriation is stealing. Appreciation, you can buy something with a native design, with a native artwork, um, as long as it's kind of coming from the people that started it. That being the native, there's native people's artists and designers that are working on it. Like one thing that Connor is involved with that I've seen and it does done the correct way and something that he hypes out is there's a Smith collab with him that was native artwork done by a native designer that then is helping provide funds back to not only that artist, but the the tribe that that artwork comes from, while also supporting Connor and his messages and what he does. And that's appreciation. So there's the, the context between appropriation and appreciation is kind of key to this. Um, I don't know what you wanted to add, if you add things to this. Um, it's it's a definitely a trippy, tricky subject. Um, I, I don't know what else to say, but otherwise that asked it. We don't know the full story, but I don't know what else you wanted to add. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And, and again, please, please read this article. There are a number of, I think, important quotes mm -hmm. from Connor, from Len, from the folks at Astis. And, you know, as I'm reading through this and really trying to piece through what's happening and you know there there's a claim that is a bit murky so like for example there is a quote from marco tanazi who is a co-founder of astis i i just found this kind of odd and confusing um but the quote is this is something working with native communities that is so important to astis Brad, other co-founder, wanted to do this for so long, but it was not something he was able to do before. The values were not there in the previous ownership structure of the company, Tanazi said. So exactly, like, I don't know, this idea that Asus's kind of uh, figurative hands were tied... And it's why they couldn't be working with native artists. I, I don't, honestly, I'm not sure if I'm buying that or that sounds, we could use less vague information on that front, you know, but I, I, do, I don't know the story. I don't know the details, right? I mean, that's being both owning businesses. That just seems like more than they just didn't maybe have the funds to do it, which was just not the necessarily the correct way. I mean, they do say in here, like the company's founders often talked about the idea for their mittens coming from a pair of mittens made by a Cree artist. The word for mittens in the Cree language is astasak. So pretty damn like, you know, this is like where we draw the line on this stuff can be tricky. Here, it seems like the line is very crossed. Not only is the name of the company coming pretty much directly from a Cree word and a Cree design, but then there's also many instances within their mitten collection and the, the colorways that they bring that have other native artistry on it. So it seems very like it was very purposeful. This company was pretty much taking a, a Oh, like native design to begin with when it comes from the mitten itself and then taking artwork from other tribes and using that. And again, it just goes into this just like, okay, you, you ask us, you probably cross the line here. Where that line is, 
I don't, I don't personally know, nor am I a good judge to know. Um, you know, some of Len's quotes, I think, are really good in here towards the end of just saying, like, you know, it's like, it's essentially, there is this added context. Like, I give this, uh, this example of arcade and, you know, getting things ripped off and you're like, whatever, it's not that big of a consequence, but there is added weight to the fact that these tribes have experienced genocide and are being, are some of the most impoverished communities in North America. You look at like the Pine Creek reservation as one of the poorest um, communities. And if you're like taking artwork from Lakota tribe and selling it to wealthy skiers, it just, it just seems off, you know? And so like, maybe they'll get around to doing something right. Maybe they'll get around to this being more beneficial, um, working with artists and designers. Um, but you know, it, as even Len says at the end, which we'll let everyone kind of take, it's, it's a tricky subject because just even the most basic design of it is kind of a, a direct theft of, of an idea and a design. Um, you know, and I will say, like, on the flip side of this, it's like, it's a tricky subject to talk about because the blending of cultures is something that's going on throughout the world. You go into the food world and blending of food um, done by the right people is often celebrated. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Top Chef. I think we've talked about this and watched every season of it. And you can see like these these chefs that come from a certain background and a certain heritage and this, this cuisine and they take that and blend it with the techniques of like French or Italian or just some, you know, another culture and how that can be celebrated. And there's certain ways that we can celebrate this, but we got to do it in a certain in a in a way that is more beneficial. And especially when we're talking about communities that are so impo impoverished, like a lot of the tribes within North America. So um, you know, I, we wanted to bring it up mainly because I, this came on our radar, obviously, when TGR ended up doing a collab um, with uh, Astus Mittens. And I think this re-fired it up. Um, knowing Connor, knowing some of what he's said, it was essentially when he started bringing these this issue up to Astus a number of years ago, they essentially stonewalled them and blocked them on all social media. Um, you know, so he kind of that was the end of the road and then it fired it back up because of the TGR collab goes in here to in this article to talk about how TGR has stopped that collaboration and is doing other things so there could be positive from it um I do think quite often there is a lot of negativity within this and it can feel toxic at times but um maybe that's what it takes sometimes to get to a better world I don't know yeah and I think another important thing to say is I take it that this is all still an evolving situation. I would love to talk with Len and or Connor to get clear on where they are at this particular point in time about what a really healthy collaboration looks like, you know, because honestly, those are details that I'm not crystal clear on. I mean, we've talked about compensating artists in the tradition as a as a fundamental thing to do that seems absolutely appropriate i don't know that that is um the su sufficient though maybe a necessary component not a sufficient component and i i think that we could get more clarity in that conversation for a number of brands certainly in the outdoor space and beyond um, because i think a lot of people would like to figure out what is the most thoughtful best way to approach things like this 
at, at a particular point in time. And guess what? That answer might look different in five years from now, 10 years from now. These things evolve. But these are important things to be thinking through and to be thoughtful about. And, um, you know, frankly, if there are companies that are just uh, choosing to stonewall rather than be open and thoughtful and trying to do right by artists and communities and traditions, well, then, then we need to do better. Totally. You know, it's one interesting thing that I learned about when I started to get into the retail business. And I talked about our getting an arcade knocked off and whatever. Um, but one of the things I really found astounding was how like theft of ideas in the clothing industry, because ideas aren't really like designs, colorways, all that kind of stuff are not patentable. They're not protectable is like the primary driver. Like I will never forget when uh, there was this brand, um, they're kind of around still, but they were really cool. They were out of Utah called Koala Tree. Um, and they made, I remember I had this shirt and it was like, pretty expensive, but it was like handmade. It was pretty cool. It had all these like flies on it, not like flies, like the bugs, like, like designs for fly fishing. And it had this cool patch on it. And it was just like unique for the time. And I was like, oh, this is rad. This is, you know, pushing it in terms of design, the way this like shirt looked. And then I saw like a year later, Volcom had almost the exact design. And I was just like, oh my God. And then I started, the more I paid attention to the retail world and the more you get to know small brands and how they're starting up. And then just within that small brand starts to catch fire and then boom, the big brands rip it off. It is like, it is astounding how much theft there is in that world. And it is like, I think to the point where no one fights it because it's just the way it's going to go. Um, you either as a young brand survive and keep pushing and follow, you know, keep following through and end up being that leader or you just get ripped off to death by the big brands. It's a, it's kind of a sad, sad world when you get into it and you realize like you go to a trade show and you see people walking by your booth and you start to get more like skeptical and paranoid because you're like, oh, that was the guy from X and X big brand. Oh, we're going to get ripped off, <laughs> you know? So um, it's pretty, pretty interesting. And maybe, maybe that played into the story. I don't know. Maybe that was just a random comment because I would just uh, share my experience with the, the making products in the retail world. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think, I, I think you're right. I think we, we know that that's a fact that there is a lot of copycatting going on, but in this case, what's so important, I've got a lot of, you know, respect for Connor for his fight and the attention that he is bringing to these topics with native communities. And this is one where I very much appreciate that he's like, Cool. Well, there might be a lot of copycatting and stealing going on in other aspects of, you know, fashion and apparel and the rest, but I am not going to let this happen, a kind of erasing of this tradition or culture. And dude, I know that's exhausting, you know? And um I'm sure that dude some days would love to just go skiing, you know, and like not feel like he needs to be continuing to call out. There's other more fun stuff in the world to do. And so, you know, I, I applaud him for continuing to speak up on a number of different fronts. And I think it's important work. And I would like to see more clarity on what a, a beneficial, healthy, appropriate 
way to do all of this looks like, you know, and, and again, he's done examples uh, that he feels good about at this point in time, the Smith collab being one of them. And um, it, it's good things for anyone purchasing stuff and anybody making stuff to think through and, and um, again, uh, kind of just do better on. Tony. Well, let's get into our next uh, topic. Another not maybe as uh, equally weighty topic, but it's just something in general that can be controversial. Um, Wait, you must mean the most Canadian news. Yeah, exactly. I think we need the palate cleanser here. Cool. Well, let's let's cleanse that palate because this is one of the, uh, this might take it as the most Canadian news story we've found yet. I, I, we both came across it separately and both put it in here in our document separately. Um, this is, uh, from a headline from the Washington post, a Canadian bakery was burglarized. The thief later called to apologize. Cupcake crimes. Yeah. Cupcake, Canadian cupcake crimes is, is what we're going with for the title of, uh, of this one. Amazing break in, you know, you got a hankering for some cupcakes, but you're Canadian, so then you realize this this was not the right thing to do, and um, yeah, and so you go back to apologize. Totally. I mean, what is the biggest stereotype of Canadians? They say sorry all the time. Sorry, sorry. oh, yeah. sorry. Um, and this one fills that in: a thief, someone who broke into a cupcake shop, broke through a window, go in and stole, um, called. Uh, it was about 10 hours later, called the shop and asked to speak with Irvine, the owner. Later that day, when she returned the man's call, Irvine felt began to feel at ease during the roughly 10-minute conversation. The burglar apologized for what he called a dumb mistake and said he would pay for the cupcakes and the front door's repairs. Like, just amazing. Is that a good palate cleanse? Because to me, it was. It's a pretty good palate cleanse. And now I kind of want a cupcake. Yeah, me too. And I want to like, I don't yeah. know, maybe look back into your life and call someone that you wronged and say, sorry. 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 Um, all right. Well, let's get back into uh, more heavy topics. I hope everyone's got their uh, their palate and cleansed. Um, Ski Magazine posted this uh, headline, being a local doesn't mean you can be a jerk. Uh, and this was written by uh, Jake Stern. Um, Subheadline: Localism is making ski towns downright hostile to newcomers these days, and there's that's no way to grow the sport. So, kind of a topic we hear about a lot. Um, I think we've talked about this, just localism in general in mountain towns. Um, you know, one of my friends has said this. I'd be Mike Rogi or um, and others, but like, I don't know. Maybe we've come to the similar conclusions, but it's like. To me, being a local means like what you give to the community, not necessarily if you were born there. And I only take that because like I grew up in a town where I'm at right now in Santa Cruz that it was renowned around the world for being one of the most localist uh, surf towns in the world. And I grew up with it. And I grew up and saw a lot of violence because of localism. I saw a lot of negativity. I saw a culture around the sport that was really, really awful. Um, which is then interesting because surfing's popularity since that time when I was a kid, uh, learning to surf and was a grom and being yelled at and getting told to paddle in because you might have slightly got in the way of somebody and or looked at someone wrong or you were talking and you're not allowed to talk in the lineup. And it was just like, 
like a really negative culture. But since then, surfing has exploded. So I want to push back on the fact that like localism like destroys a sport and destroys its growth because surfing's exploded, especially in Santa Cruz. Um, this article kind of feels like one of those things where you're like, you're just going to immediately read it and be like, yeah, like localism is bad. And he gives a good example of, you know, a typical thing that I think any of us have that lives in mountain towns or even visits mountain towns. A scene is like the locals yelling at and or making fun of some uh, tourist doing something stupid. Gives an example of going through, uh, you know, the line getting through there, the pass checked and, you know, the pass being next to their phone. So then the scanner doesn't open the gate and, you know, fumbling with that and people making fun of them. And so you're like, yeah, that is example is is bad localism but i don't even want to say that's like localism that's just being an asshole and that's ultimately what this comes down to is just like being don't be an asshole but i will say just like i've seen in surfing out of towners tourists second homeowners people that are moving into town do need to know the consequences of their actions and i say that in kind of not a we don't need to bring violence into it. You don't need to be an asshole. You don't need, you can be inclusive. You can be welcoming to people, but your actions when you're coming to mountain towns can have consequences. And I think that's where localism starts to foment and goes into it into the article. If you were buying a second home in a mountain town and you decide to rent it out on Airbnb, that is a choice that has consequences for that community. This is where things like localism, like protecting your community, can have benefit. And I will say that coming from a surf world where I've seen now going up to my local breaks and them being completely like absolutely flooded with people, which is okay, whatever, it's popular, I can deal with that. But more people that are ditching their boards in front of you while you're duck diving behind them. So all of a sudden their boards flying at your head and could split your head open. People that are flailing and getting in the way, being out at breaks that they haven't, they don't have the skills yet to be out there. And that's where things like localism can be like, no, you, you, you got to spend years of your life getting to know these waves, developing the skills to then paddle out to this one break because it's an advanced break. And once you then go there and learn kind of the, the ways to surf that waves, the ways to get out of people's waves, the ways to handle your board so you don't hurt other people is beneficial for everyone. And I actually kind of like that long-term process of earning respect and earning your skills and getting to know a place before maybe even dropping in on a wave. And so I see the same thing in mountain towns is that like you, we can't be as mountain town residents just like 100% open to like, hey, all newcomers just come on up here. Like everyone just come on, like let's ultimate growth because ultimately like that can't happen. So like, how do we do this of being like, how do we protect a local community with positive means and ways and while educating people to like, hey man, if you buy a second house here, maybe you should consider renting it out to and a long-term lease to an employee as opposed to Airbnb in it. Maybe there's ways that you can, you know, not shift your tax base keep it at home, but shift it up to this mountain town so that there can be more tax dollars going to public infrastructure. I don't know. But ultimately, like, I just don't want to say like, localism isn't a black and white issue. Like, 
there are benefits of localism. There's ways to not be an asshole about it, um, ways to not make fun of people and make people just feel like shit. But there also needs to be like earning your respect, being a positive point of the community that comes through advocating for your community, which we could call localism. Jonathan's deep in his philosophical thought right now. No, I'm just thinking back to some of our other conversations we've had on this front. And I think, you know, the idea we've talked about there, there are responsibilities, even an ethic, I would say a couple of different sides. So if you or I are going into a different community our responsibility is to try to figure out how does this community operate? You know, if we're coming in for, you know, a three-day trip or if we're <laughs> coming in to live there indefinitely, learn what the issues are in that community. Try to be a good member of that community. You know, I, so there are there are responsibilities and ethics, I think, for quote-unquote tourists or visitors, which we all are at some point in time. And then, yeah, I mean, for those of us who happen to live in a community, we've talked about this before, especially it's a thing you see a lot in Colorado, the native bumper Mm -hmm. stickers. Which is drastically ironic considering one of our topics that we were just going into. (laughs) Yep, exactly. So like some of you maybe can legitimately, but just because you were born here isn't enough for me to, let's keep it real on that front. We've been over that. So, right, I think, like, it needs to go both ways. Like, respect, tourist visitors should respect the community and the people who live here. There's a number of different ways to try to do that. And then I do think for those of us who live in a given community where folks come to visit, try to be helpful. But, you know, nobody gets the excuse of, like, yeah, to just be making fun or berating some visitor you know, who doesn't know better, but also for the visitor who walks in like they own the place and expect everybody to kind of, you know, bend to whatever whimsy, like we just all got to like work together on this one. And, and remember that we all are always at some point in time going to be the quote unquote local and then going to be the visitor. And I don't know. Totally. No. And, um, I'll give an example, and I give this from the surfing world, and uh, this was like a positive thing. So Hawaii and Kauai specifically is renowned as being still to this day one of the most like localized surfing destinations in the world. And it's very popular. It's got some of the best waves, and there's a very localized element to it. Um, Whatever that is, I remember going to Kauai, which is recognized as like the most localized island of all the surfing. And I went to this surf break, which I unknowingly was the most localized spot within the most localized kind of island. And I paddled out to the spot and there's only a few people out and it was a pretty crappy day. Knowing growing up in Santa Cruz, knowing that like, hey, be patient, smile, have respect. I paddled out to near the point where kind of everyone was taking off. Um, and then, but stood outside of or sat outside everyone that was taking off. And I sat there for 45 minutes, didn't even paddle for a wave, just sat there. And then people like they'd come paddling back and I could just tell that these were locals. They, this was their home break. And I'd like smile and just be like, kind of sitting there. And finally one guy looks at me, he's like, Hey bro, you want a wave? And I was like, sure. Yeah. Thanks. And he like, 
wave kind of comes. He's like, go for this one. It's like, boom, come back out. Thanks, man. Paddle back out, kind of coming to that, the outside again. Maybe sit there for another 20 minutes. He's like, yeah, why don't you go for this one? I was like, cool, thanks. Got a wave. It was pretty astounding because in this like really localized spot in this really localized island, like all of a sudden, because I was really patient, because I kind of knew that like you don't just paddle out right to the peak and start battling for waves. You know, you're obviously not from there. Um, it's a small island in a small community of surfers. I can quickly tell who's a tourist and who's not. And because of, because I was like patient, this guy all of a sudden was very friendly. And then we start, got to chatting. The next day, I went back to that same spot. It was a little bit better. There was maybe double the amount of people. Saw that same guy again. Hey, man, how's it going? We start talking, get some waves, kind of do the same thing. And I ended up having this amazing surf trip, surfing this wave and getting a ton of really good waves because it just kind of like played by the rules, was smart, like was respectful to the locals and had a great trip. And like, it wasn't until I came home that I was talking to fellow surfers about this wave. And they were like, oh my God, that's like the most like, like gnarly place to surf because of, you know, there's, there's fights all the time. They tell people to paddle in. And I was like, well, it was super welcoming. And I just kind of got lucky that I paddled out on a small day and knew the rules and was respectful. And the same goes for and going anywhere. If you're respectful towards local, if you're moving to a mountain town, be respectful, be an added part of the community. Don't just feel like you're taking because that is one of the things that then ends up creating what I think what we see in these environments is people just being assholes about it. And you're like, hey, don't being an asshole is not a good way to act. And then being someone that just shows up and pays no respect to how that town operates, the culture, the the way, the, the, the problems that that town has and just trying to take, take, take is no way to operate as a tourist and or as a, you know, someone that's moving there. So um, I just, I guess my whole thing with this thing was just like localism. It's just not like, don't just think of it reactionary is like awful. There's a better way to do this when you're advocating for your own community. Um, but there is also like, there's, there's benefits to, to that. Next topic. This is actually a really big deal. I don't think you and I are going to go super in depth on it because, well, honestly, because I still need to learn a lot more about this issue. So we're going to talk about it for a second, but one of the reasons why I want to bring it up now is because there is some time sensitivity on this issue. The Bureau of Land Management has a proposal. Uh, it's called the Public Lands Rule. And seriously, every listener of this podcast needs to get brought up to speed on what this is. But basically, we will talk about it a little bit here, but there is a comments period. Uh, there is a comments period that is open until the 5th of July, 2023. And so what I most want to do is we will include a link um, to the blm.gov website and the page, this public lands rule page, where there is a lot of good information, but you have a brief window that ends July 5th, uh, so that if you have comments on this, please submit them. So that's what we're talking about here. We will include a link in the show notes to this public lands rule page, and you can find a lot of 
editorial about this uh, this lands rule from other sources. But Cody, anything in particular that you want to highlight on this proposal? Not much other than just like I, people should educate them that I'm not as deeply educated. I can't speak to every little aspect, but I have read a little bit about it. But essentially with the BLM and this public period of commentary is adding to their management conservation. So quite often the BLM has been, uh, uh, you know, the Bureau of Land Management has been something that organizes for mineral rights, uh, a federal entity that looks over mineral rights, oil rights, uh, grazing land, they kind of manage a lot of commercial activity on public lands. Conservation hasn't been essentially a part of their directive, but this is a chance where they're going to add it to their directive. So if you care about conservation, I would say comment on this because um, it is, you know, getting a lot of headway. And if there's enough public comments, they could add this and that could be pretty critical to uh, the future of public lands. So that's all that's all I'll say. Yeah. And I was talking actually last night with uh, Paul Forward about this issue, and he shared with me a link. It's actually to REI. There's a, there's a page on REI.com that's talking a bit about this and some of the information there. Um, it says the Bureau of Land Management manages one in 10 acres of land in the United States, but only 15% of BLM lands are protected for conservation or recreation. But climate-driven pressures like severe drought and wildfires, invasive pests, habitat loss, and more make it clear we cannot continue to manage these lands as we've done in the past. That's why the BLM has issued a new public lands rule that emphasizes its role in ensuring healthy landscapes for the benefit of the public, and they want to hear from you. So this, I think, I think that's a nice synopsis of kind of the stakes here and the thought, right? Like we need to switch things up. So this is what you get to decide individually. Do you think we are in sort of a new era? And if you are of the mind that uh, given the rapid changes that we are seeing in climate, maybe this means that we ought to uh, adapt how we have governed public lands, well, here's your opportunity. So again, we'll include a link to the BLM website. There is some really good information on that page. If you are inclined, comment before the 5th of July. Cool. So now let's dish out some Mountain Town advice. Okay. Yeah. Mountain Town advice. And we have a Mountain Town relationship advice coming in second. So always, always makes us happy. This came in from Andrew. And so Andrew says, hello, I'm a big fan of your podcasts and reviews. I have a couple Mountain Town Life Advice questions. They are most relevant to Cody, but would love to hear Jonathan's thoughts as well. So let's go number one, Cody, what are your plans for introducing your son Indy to the sport? Any general advice for getting little ones interested and excited about skiing? I have a soon-to-be three-year-old son who has not skied yet. However, we're moving to an East Coast mountain town this summer, and I want to get him on skis and eventually get him as obsessed with the sport as I am. 
If it matters, my wife is a beginner skier for now. So let's field that question first before we get to Andrew's second. Thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be exploring this uh, through experience over my next 10 years. Um, I don't know exactly, but I will say I've spent a lot of time analyzing what I've seen through friends and who their kids and kids that are now teenagers and whether they love skiing as much as their parents do and what are their kind of motivations. And what I've kind of seen out of it is there's there's two main tricks I've seen to getting your kids into the sport that you love. The first is bribery. Bribery is a very powerful, <laughs> motivating tool. And um, I always, you know, like when I've heard this from other parents is like, hey, take another lap and we'll buy you a Snickers bar. And they take another lap. And, you know, you kind of get them motivated by things they already know and love to kind of do it a little bit more. And you're almost like tricking them into continuing to like fall in love with this sport. Um, so bribery is a motivator. I know it's like a powerful incentive for a lot of parenting. Um, it was used to, mm -hmm. for me in a lot of ways, mainly to get good grades in school. Bribery, my parents bribed me and it worked. Like I got good grades and cause you know, my parents <laughs> said they'd buy me a surfboard if I got straight A's after a whole year. So what did I do that year? I got straight A's. Uh, yeah. Wow, nice. Um, and so the same could be said for little kids. My parents also did the opposite though i was like uniquely just super obsessed with skiing i didn't have that issue they would bribe me to come in um they have a story where it was like raining i was on the exhibition chair i was the only person on the chair and they were bribing me every lap they'd come down to the bottom i'd be there and they tried and bribe me to come in and i just kept refusing and i kept anting upping the ante on the the levels of bribery but i I essentially skied until the the chair closed. So my personal experience, I don't know. I had to be bribed the opposite. But the other thing I will say is the, the second aspect I've seen is not pushing your kids into it. Let them discover it for themselves. Um, I've seen the results of a few friends um, and their motivations with their kids. And the ones I've seen the most successful, I think, are the ones that didn't push them. Just took them out there and let them fall in love with it on their own. Um, because I've seen some other friends kind of push them and drive them away from the sport. The other thing I've seen too is a lot of negativity surrounding the sport, whether, you know, negativity in the household talking about how crowded it is these days, how it used to be better, that kind of stuff. I've seen that like household talk drive their own kids away from the sport, which was pretty interesting to see. Um, so like, I think keeping it always positive and letting their kids fall in love with the sport on their own. And I know it's weird because you, you ultimately have the motivation where you want to get them to love the sport, but like, you can't force love on anyone. And I think they have to discover it for themselves. Um, you know, one of the things I really loved about skiing at a young age and, you know, three is a little young for it, but when they're five and six, putting them into like Mighty Mites programs, kids programs, where you get to have friends and new friends and this freedom of going out with your friends and skiing the mountain, that is such a joy. And they discover the love of the sport for themselves as opposed to their parents kind of pushing it on them. So those are my two pieces of advice and from what I've seen and observed other parents is just like bribery and let them fall in love with it on their own. <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm, we're just going to let it ride with that. I, li I like the bribery part. Okay. This, I'm, gonna, I'm biting my tongue. 
So here's, here's Andrew's second question. Do you have any tips on balancing having a young child and both parents having a flexible career in the sense of making one's own schedule? My wife and I are both research mathematicians. Oh, fancy. Yeah. Co- neither Cody nor I are research mathematicians. Probably, that's probably shocking for all of you to, to learn. Wild. Yeah. It, anyway. was either, it was either uh, skiing or a research mathematician. It was like one or the other. Yeah. yeah. My wife and I are both research mathematicians who can schedule our own work and can push it off when life gets in the way. However, I found it difficult to balance that with all the demands and joys of early parenthood. I could be totally wrong, but I envision the career of a pro skier sharing that feature. After all that, I also have a hard time justifying ski time for myself over work and life responsibilities. Any advice on that? I imagine that's a more widely applicable question. Yeah, no, this is a is a tricky one because that work-life balance and then family balance is one we're all trying to achieve and something that I've been learning going through raising a young kid. There's one thing that stuck with me recently. Um, I think it was going around a little bit, but it was like, this uh, paraphrase it, but it was this quote is essentially the only people that are ever going to remember f- you staying late at your job, working extra hard, being away from your kids to work harder are your kids. Like the only people, you know, your employer, the people you work for, even yourself are not going to remember how much extra work you put into your job, but your kids will. So to me, like, I found it uniquely interesting because when having now a child in my life and being my main through line in life being skiing is the one thing I've been obsessed with and love more than anything in my entire life. And then this kid comes into your life and it rapidly changes that. And I would, you know, I this year would have pow days on the weekend where we didn't have childcare where people are like, hey, we're going to go shoot. Let's go ski. Da, 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 and be like, no, I want to hang out with my kid. And that's a wildly that's a wild shock for me to be wanting to spend time with my family. I think we as a culture and a society prioritize work and working hard. And that's a really, really good value. And we almost prioritize that more over family. Whereas I found in my opinion, like the family is like one of the most like thorough joys you can find. So to me, like this balance, if it's going to skew anywhere, skew it towards your family. Like don't, you know, push harder when it comes to, to work because you feel like that pressure to essentially work hard. Like if you're, you know, I found it within the first six months of having Indy, like I responded to the least amount of emails I've ever responded to and felt guilty about it. Yet everything kept happening. It was almost just, I prioritized, uh, the emails that mattered because I was spending more time with my kids. So to me, like just, we might feel guilty as a society and as a as a person for you know going away from that emphasis on work but i think happiness the purpose of life the the that true contentment is going to be come from your family so to me i would just say always if you're going to err on a side err on the side of family well, two things I'm thinking. I literally had a friend yesterday who shall remain nameless be like, dude, don't have kids. 
<laughs> he's like, your life is great. Just don't mess it up with kids. So that's the counterpoint to everything you just yes. said. But you seem really genuinely happy. And I'm, I'm, I, it makes me happy all. I do have a lot of friends and I do think their kids bring them a lot of joy. And, um, that's, that's terrific. So, but then there's the flip side, which is like, turns out. <laughs> totally there. And that's the thing. Like, I don't want to push everyone should have kids for me. It's been like, yeah, one of the coolest things ever that's ever happened. And I love it. And it's amazing. And it's like, put a new emphasis on life and you see the joy of raising your own kid and seeing them start to experience the world there. It's, it's something deep inside me that just loves it. And you're like, yeah, having a kid, it's the greatest joy you're going to ever have in your life. But you're like, but I know people that are the same way that are like, yeah, I don't want to do it. And, or I've did it. And you know, it's just kind of like, it wasn't, I didn't feel that as much. And that's a kind of shitty thing to, to, to shitty place to be in. Yeah. Yeah. I I just think the the part of the question about I also have a hard time justifying ski time for myself over work and life responsibilities. And um I think this is a pretty important thing. Look, sometimes life circumstances, some people you don't have a choice. Some people are working two or three jobs to support children or to be able to, you know, pay for a rent in a place that just got doubled or tripled, like things happen, right? But I find that with Blister, we we keep doing more and more things and then we keep being asked to do more and more things. And we long ago hit the point where there were enough hours in the like waking day, not like... We've never been at the point where this all works in kind of the nine to five landscape. But I think with all that, I've had to just try to really double down and protect certain things that are, I'm, I'm just going to simply make priorities because if those don't happen, it, then it will just be, you know, in my case, all blister stuff all the time. And, and there's some great things and we like those things, right? But I think just thinking about, um, whether it's working out, whether it's kind of the, we've talked a lot about the mental health benefits of getting out on a trail run or a mountain bike ride or skiing or whatever, like those things are very real to me and somebody else might have some other things that are pretty fundamentally important to them. I don't think you're probably doing yourself or anybody in your le- your life favors by letting that stuff fall by the wayside. So I do think it's pretty important to truly carve out, identify those priorities and values, carve those things out, and um, and fight to protect that time or those activities. Maybe that's all easier said than done, but I don't know. I, I, I don't think I don't think it's the right thing to just be like, well, I just feel too guilty. Like there's both physical long-term benefits and mental long-term benefits, again, that I don't think you're doing yourself or the people in your life favors to be out of joint in some of those things. Okay, next question. I'm going to leave the name out on this one. They didn't say to, but I think that might be the smart play here. Why, because he takes a shot at me? Because this is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this one says, Jonathan and Cody, when Cody's advice on connecting with nicer men is, um, quoting Cody, there aren't any, just date women instead. I realize this might not be the best venue for meaningful relationship advice, but I'll throw my cards on the table anyway and hear what you have to say on this one. Now, as much as I want to give you crap about this, Cody, this is an unfair characterization. This was not about nicer men. This was some very specific criteria if listeners of our last conversation. So you did, in fact, the the punchline of your advice was, in fact, to just date women. Yeah. But I don't think it's fair to say that this was like, well, there aren't nice dudes out there. Totally. Anyway, but people can go back and the listen. The funny thing is, like, I actually, like, I... I like getting a shot taken at me because it is kind of like sort of <laughs> what I exactly said. And so he's the guy's right. Like I didn't say pretty much that sure. Contextually, I could get defensive about it and all this stuff, but ultimately I'm like, yeah, it was general being very generalized and kind of making a joke at it. So ultimately like you can, everyone's free to make fun of me for that. But like, dude, like our whole reputation is on the line right yeah. now. Because we're being told that this probably isn't the right venue for meaningful relationship advice. So we really, we, we really need to bring it on this answer, okay? So the, the, the note continues. Mountain towns seem to attract disproportionate representation of two particular demographics. The first is the athlete either aspiring or thriving in their career, who needs access to the terrain and communities built around adventure sports in order to train, find teammates, create content, etc. They will often travel for film projects, perhaps for months at a time, and get out on the slopes or trails for big days regularly. They may spend an entire season on tour following the weather and avoiding the smoke, but when they register for an event or podcast interview, they still claim that consistent hometown every time and their Strava followers, whom they'll never meet, take pride in being from the same place. Wow, this is like getting like weirdly specific and detailed, but it's it's well written. Yeah, that that's the one part of this. I'm like, hmm, there's something little deep in there, a little like home. Yeah. I don't know. I did. I took that as a weird kind of. I was like, I don't know what you mean by that because that is the hometown, and that's kind of how we define it, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't know there was there's something else going on there, and I can't dive dive into the psychology of the of the the writer from this email, but I'm thinking that there's some sort of deep issue or problem they might have with that their partner that they're going to go into in the second paragraph go for it well let's let's continue so that's the first this is like the athlete profile the second is the remote worker or entrepreneur startup owner they've chosen to forgo some of the career growth opportunities that come with locating your business near a commerce hub or working in person at the corporate office they favor the freedom to get out for a quick rip at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday between client meetings, and they are still in their guest room office working through happy hour. The local bike mechanics and landscapers blame them for driving up property values and pricing the locals out with their big city salary, which would be a fair criticism if they weren't also spending half of that salary on landscaping and bike upgrades and showing up to trail work parties just to get some human interaction. I, our letter writer here, am one of the above, and my partner 
is the other. So what happens when these two caricatures try to fall in love? There's plenty of opportunity for clash in lifestyles, availability, earning potential, and even how they enjoy a typical day outside. That clash breeds resentment. The athlete can't be an equitable partner in a housing investment, while the entrepreneur can't seem to take Mondays off ever. They're out for a tour together for fun, but the athlete still needs to make a little bit of content, while the worker doesn't have the endurance to knock out a 5,000-foot day. The worker is consistently jealous that their partner gets to spend so much more time doing the thing they both live there for, forgetting that it is a part of the athlete's work. They both want to spend time together, but the athlete needs to travel and the worker needs to be at their standing desk. I'm sure you each know many couples that fit this frame. So, what are some strategies you've seen to help make it work? How can a professional athlete support a career-focused partner and vice versa? This is probably one of the toughest relationship advice ones we got. Wouldn't you agree? I think it might be, yeah. So, Because, I mean, otherwise, we just tell people to go date women. Yeah, totally. Just make jokes yeah, and easy. men suck and just date women. Um, so, you know, there's a couple things that I could, like draw from experience and draw from observation and a few just kind of overall bigger picture thoughts. There's like the first bigger picture thought that I can think of is like love shouldn't bring breed resentment. And so when there is love there, you don't, you don't necessarily try to control this other person to be more like you, to fit your schedule, your viewpoints on life, to, you know, to see things the way exactly way you do. They're like, I often have said this to friends and, you know, this is my own relationship with my own wife is like, we are very similar in a lot of things, but we're very opposite in a lot of things where we see a lot of things very differently. And I think that's strengthened our relationship because we kind of grow together. And if I were to resent my wife for those viewpoints and try and just constantly pull her over to my side, then I think you're just going to create a toxic relationship that doesn't end up, end up in growth. And so from, you know, the bigger picture viewpoint, I think there's something going on with both of you that isn't necessarily about growth together. And that is more trying to fight to pull the other person, the other, the other way. And the second thing I want to say that the, the path forward, I think is the, what I've seen what works because every relationship is going to be unbalanced. Um, when it comes to what I'm seeing in this writer is a lot of kind of like transactional nature in the relationship. You do this and I do this and you do this and like, but communicate that when it starts with acknowledgement, acknowledge what you love about that person, what they do. And, you know, whether that starts with just a deep talk of, your partner saying, like, acknowledging that, like, no, I'm very thankful that you have this job so that you can put a, a roof uh, over our heads and own this house. And the other person, I'm thankful for you being the free spirit and being out doing what I love to do every day. And it starts, I think, 
there to a path to healing is just acknowledging what that other person is and why you like that about them. I don't know. Those are my two first thoughts. I'm curious to hear yours to kind of see if I can play off some other ideas. Well, my first thought, which probably isn't going to help us win points on the Meaningful Relationship Advice Award is not a single thing in this email makes me think you ought to be in this relationship. I don't hear a single acknowledgement, not a single acknowledgement in a pretty long letter about the great element of the partner or the, we, you know, we get a lot of joy out of doing this together or so that, that has me like real nervous here. And I agree with, it sounds quite transactional, but I think any rich relationship, robust relationship, if, I mean, both parties necessarily have to see the value that the other person is bringing to the table. And so, yeah, I think in many, most relationships, one person is going to be earning more money than another. And is that going to be the thing that starts to breed that resentment? I mean, if that's the case, go find a roommate that makes exactly the same amount of money as you and you can split bills and a mortgage or, you know, rent 50-50. But I think like at a certain point, there's going to, in most cases, be that kind of financial discrepancy. So are is your partner somebody where you're like, yeah, there's a discrepancy there, but they provide so many wonderful things to this partnership that it's truly fine, right? Because they provide things to the relationship that I don't and can't. Let me just stop on that front. Yeah, and I think diving a little deeper and kind of seeing the letter for what it is, I think the, the writer the person that wrote this email maybe has just a feeling of not being acknowledged and feeling of acceptance in their own town and in this relationship, because they kind of bringing back to that, like claiming a hometown. And this person does like kind of fit my definition of a local going to trail work parties, going like spending money on local things. Like they, they add like their they they feel like they're adding to the community and because of their position and their job, you know, their acceptance in the community doesn't feel kind of acknowledged. And maybe it's the same way that this, the, the local, the, the professional athlete is maybe not feeling acknowledgement of what this person brings to the table when it comes to their relationship and the, the physical means. So maybe there's just this kind of feeling of acceptance, both in town and in this relationship. Cause I took away from you too. I was like, man, there's just there's not a lot of positivity in this and like acknowledging that like you like this person and want to fall in love with this person because they are traveling, because they are free spirit, because they decided to forego the natural, more stereotypical path of life of having a steady job and making a lot of money and you know doing that. That's exactly probably why you're attracted to this person because it's deep within you to want to do that. Vice versa, the athlete, is probably feels like, like comfort with you, stability, that you are a part of this town, that you are bringing something to this community. And I think it's, I think it's almost a little bit more personal than it is in this relationship. And I, I had, I'd say just more communication and more acknowledgement 
of each other's roles within this relationship and within their mountain town is potentially kind of the only path to repairing this. Because I was with you too. I was like, I, maybe this is not not a good relationship. Yeah. And I mean, we're, we're certainly taking some assumptions or making some assumptions here, but huge assumptions. Yeah. And we don't, yeah. we don't know the intricate details from this letter. I didn't see a lot of positivity, but there is a path to positivity. And I think that comes through acknowledgement of each other's roles in the relationship, what they like about that person, what they're bringing to the table and making this less of a transactional thing. And more, if it can cross those boundaries where you're not like checking off like every mark and being like, well, you brought this and you brought that and I brought this and you brought that. And then that the only way this is going to work out, if if that checklist is completely perfectly balanced, like then it's not going to work because like you said, every relationship is unbalanced. That's the way it's going to go. But love will always cut through that and you're supposed to grow together with these unbalanced kind of parameters to become not necessarily more balanced, but just grow. Yeah. yeah. And I, and by the way, I would also add, I don't think it's like not just love in some passive sense. I do think there is a discipline of, we remind ourselves of the many beautiful things that that partner brings to the table. And hopefully they're doing the same thing, right? Because it is easy in the day-to-day of life to be like, God, I'm, you know, I'm paying for everything or he never cooks or, you know, there's all of those things. And that's when like, if it's really causing resentment, you better have that conversation because it's only going to get worse, right? And then the other thing is, again, just the acknowledgement of like, yeah, this person is not me. Thank God they're not me. And they're bringing all of these other wonderful aspects to the table. But if you're kind of at a point where you're like, yeah, I, they're not me and I'm not seeing what value they provide to like the partnership or the relationship or I've, I, I'm over it, I'm, you might not be in the right relationship. The most toxic relationships I've seen in my life are ones where the person looks for their yep. mirror. Uh, the partner that is the exact opposite or the exact same as them. And you're like, there's no growth from that. You end up like festering your own worst qualities with that person together to make them worse. Like there's this, like, again, I like, I felt like this pretty early on, like every, with my own relationship with my wife, she challenged me in a lot of different ways and helped me grow vice versa. Like I challenged her in ways to grow in better ways. And it was like, it took a lot of work. I remember like kind of early on, there was questions in our relationship, whether we were going to survive this, but we stuck together. And I, to this day will tell people and with like a dead serious look them in the eyes way that our relationship gets stronger every year. And like, we've been together for God. I mean, we've been married for 12 years and I, you know, I met her when, at least when I was 21. So we've been together for nearly 20 years. And so it's like kind of crazy to me that our relationships have gotten stronger, but I think it came from this place of us being kind of obviously having a lot of similarities when it comes to things we like to do, things that entertain us, these basic qualities that we share and enjoy, but ultimately like challenging each other to grow in different ways. So um, if you're just looking for the, the mirror to yourself, like that's don't, don't look that way. That doesn't work in relationships. Yeah. And, and um, to be clear, like I don't think this person 
is looking for the mirror, but they are pointing out these real differences in lifestyle. That's that's also going to be present in virtually every single partnership and relationship. So I don't know. I hope coming back to the that discipline, the reminder of the the many gifts and skills and other qualities that a person is bringing to a relationship, great. You know, also get a strong friend group. That's also, I think, going to be my answer to every single question. Like, don't be in the thing where it's only the two of you and you're trying to be all things for each other. That is a horrible strategy. And it's also why you should not date people who don't have solid friends. Because if they can't create solid friends, it's a red flag. I've always noticed that um, friends within the same sex group, like being women with a lot of women friends, or we not even, I don't have to go that literal, but when I've seen those where it's just kind of like not having those deep friends, there ends up being like issues within their own relationships. I see a lot of like what I like to call serial monogamists, where they're just kind of continually cycling through like new, new partners, new partners, new partners. They're like loyal to that person, but it's a six month relationship, a year of relationship and just back to back to back. So yeah, no, this is, it's a tough one, but I think it's going to take some questions of their own uh, acceptance with themselves within their own community and their relationship and acknowledgement of the the other person. Why you like this person, what they bring to the table from, from both parties. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope, I hope, you know, that counts as meaningful relationship advice. We tried hard. We offered our yep. best thoughts in the moment. We're not research mathematicians, but we did try hard. Now, I know you're, we're on borrowed time here. Do we have any time? We do. It's, my kid is not awake yet, but within the next 10 minutes, yep. he could be. So if all of a sudden I'm like, yep. gotta go, there's someone crying downstairs. <laughs> yeah. But let's get into a few things we've been reading, talking about, and maybe talk about that finale of Succession. Because <sighs> we never did. Oh, my God. No, we can't do that on borrowed time. But it's going to be... Okay, okay. <laughs> we, got one, we got one email that was like, absolutely love reviewing the news you definitely talked about succession too much last time so i i, I blocked yeah, I that person did. they uh yeah I, I banned them yeah that's the best best course of action just don't listen to us just turn it off with 15 minutes left to go <laughs> okay well okay well we are in borrowed time We're, we might get interrupted but like okay let's let's do final thoughts on the last episode of succession or thoughts on succession in general now I'll just say like it uh, landed really, really well. And I think it landed. I think that the dialogue I've seen of being like, you know, like disappointment with who won or whatever. No, it landed perfectly. That was exactly how it ended up being. Nobody won. Everyone was kind of followed through their destiny, essentially, that this circular kind of they ended up being who they we thought they are um, and are all unhappy because of it. Um I want to say it was a perfect ending. It's always hard to end a, a good series like that. And I think they did a great job. Um, I'll just say that it is succession is leaped breaking bad for number two in my book. Um, so it is to me, if I was going to do a, a ranking, a Rushmore, it is, it is my second favorite TV show of all time. And cause I thought they, they landed the plane perfectly. I don't think they could have done that any better. I might, we did this, I published as an open mic piece, like our text, like kind of real time text exchange about the bear 
Oh yeah, yeah. I might do a that similar thing because we we exchanged some pretty lengthy stuff after the season finale. I might do the same thing on that front, but I see your claim about succession moving to number two for you. And I'm going to raise you in a very big way. I've been thinking about this a lot and I don't say this flippantly. I completely agree with you. That last episode landed the plane brilliantly. Succession is as good as Shakespeare's King Lear, as Hamlet, this is a masterwork. And, you know, I actually did literally study Shakespeare, you know, Mm -hmm. like I did my time. And I think that I, I just think about some of the great works of art and some of the things that we put on a pedestal kind of culturally. This is as good as that. And I am so happy to be able to say that with what sounds almost sacrilegious or something. I just think it's actually true. And Mm -hmm. it is not to diminish Shakespeare, but it is to try to keep it real. Like when we have these brilliant works of art that so powerfully plumb elements of human psychology and experience and the rest, I just think we have to acknowledge that Jesse Armstrong and his team and this incredible crew of actors pulled something off that I think formerly uh, would have been like, no, if, like, of, of course nothing can touch, you know, King Lear or Hamlet. But this did. It really does. And you can go back and read Lear and Hamlet. And again, I'm not trying to diminish those, but I do think we need to be able to call a spade a spade. And I think this was a complete masterpiece. Um, And it's why it has been for me for some time. I've called it the best thing I've ever seen in TV. And I know it's not there for you. And it's only not there for me just from a just personal reason. Sure. Just kind of like, like to me, the wire is, is that still, but just because of the subject matter, because of the kind of the way that they explained it, I think as a, as an execution of storyline, no succession is better. And I, it's funny, we always draw back to Shakespeare, but one of my first kind of books that I loved more than anything follows a similar path as this is the Aeschylus is the Oresteia. And we look at Greek tragedies and that's what this ultimately is. And it, it's this, what I like to call circular storytelling, um, or essentially the people you're like, oh, they're going out and they just end up at the exact same place. And that's what this does because it kind of, you know, it's a, it's a tragic viewpoint to look at like your fate is intertwined and you're pretty much never going to escape from who you are. And I know Jesse Armstrong's kind of philosophy on people is that you are who you are and you're not going to escape that people don't change, which is a pretty dark way to look at it. But ultimately it kind of shows in this. I mean, there's a lot of levels to the storytelling in succession that is amazing, but ultimately like that circular storytelling is what makes this, uh, you know, to me, it's like, yes, it's not the best thing I've ever watched, but it's a classic. Like this is as it's a classic storytelling done in a new format, in a new medium, in a kind of a, a new way. And it's done. It was it was amazing. And I've, I'm really happy it ended in the way it did. And it couldn't have ended any better. I, st- I kind of keep thinking about that cold, open-handed, 
gesture that Tom did to Shiv and her taking his hand and what that little thing meant for this entire story. She turned into exactly who her father wanted her to be, which was being subservient, being not a leader, and like that cold, loveless kind of marriage. They, they're both trapped, and I don't know, I could keep going on about it, but ultimately it just it ended really well. Um, and I, I've said it before on this. I'll say it quickly once again. For me, I if I'm trying to sum, sum up the best TV show ever, this is the highest level writing from start to finish where you can do line studies of the dialogue. I would put nothing over this. And I don't think that's how The Wire works, right? The Wire is brilliant for other reasons, but I think the this incredibly high level of writing with this incredibly high level of acting performances. So for me, that's where nothing outdoes it, even if we, you know, The Wire is an incredible achievement for very different reasons, you know? But but that's for me why I'm just like, I, and it was such a privilege to be for 41 hours, dude. It was basically a 41-hour play, and it was brilliant. And I I've never seen anything like it. So that's that's my take on that. Now, we need to come back. This is the part I wanted to blast you about. Okay. The Bear, season two is on. And have you, I've, I've watched only the first two episodes because I want to make this last. Have you watched any of it yet? I haven't. Um, I've been, so I just started diving into Reservation Dogs. Um, which I've been, which has been on the list. Um, and just, I'm two episodes in, so I can't say much about it quite yet. Um, I've been on a big reading kick. Um, we could talk about it. I just heard my kid starting to wake up from his nap, so I don't have much time I get, but I've been kind of reading a bunch. Um, I finally, I had watched the movie Dune, um, when it came out. Um, I think we even talked about it. I went back and read the book and then I watched the movie again. Um, and we were kind of having a discussion back and forth on text of just like, I've been getting more into sci-fi just because I think that it's a, it's a unique avenue to study philosophy in an entertaining sort of way. You know, it talks a lot about the, the, the human ideals of, of, you know, utopias and dystopias and all these kinds of things. It's a unique way to explore it. Dune was a really good book. I wouldn't say it was like as, as classical as it's, kind of told, but it was entertaining. And I will say I am an absolute sucker for stunning cinematography and Dune the movie was unbelievably beautiful. The second time I watched it, I, I would almost be recommend people read the book and then watch it because the movie doesn't do a good job of necessarily telling the story really well, but man, do you get a sense of feeling and of place in that movie like like only good, really amazing cinematography can do. And I thought, I thought it was, it was really cool to read the book and then go back and watch the movie. Okay. So there's a recommendation from Cody. Now you interrupted me. I was trying to blast you. Mm -hmm. You were dead wrong on your take on the bear and the yeah. season finale of the bear. It's proven. I was right. You were wrong. First episode of season two proves this to, like factually. And you need to be in on this show. You are wrong for being out on this show. So like, I invite you back in. I invite you back into the right side of history. 
So I'm just not as in as you are. And I don't know why. And I, like when it comes to the culinary world, like I really attracted to that. Like one of my heroes is um, Anthony Bourdain. I actually just watched the documentary Roadrunner about him, which was really, really well done. Uh, I know there was some controversy um, about that movie in general, but I, I don't know. I guess uh, the bear... I like it, but I didn't absolutely love it quite like you, obviously. I think that was that was taken by it. And it's okay to have disagreements on things. No, it's we know not, this. Cody. It yes, is not it is. okay. <laughs> we need to be exactly the same. That's what we just established in relationship advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just We're kidding, just kidding, just exact, kidding. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, um, but no, I, I probably am, yeah. I, I, when I saw the second season announced in the trailer, I was. I remember thinking, I was like, well, I was probably wrong on my take on what this is going to be. But it was uh -huh. just like, that was what I remember believing after it. And that was where it was kind of like, ah, this just kind of jumped a little bit of a shark for me um, in a certain way. Like, I just didn't, I just didn't really like that ending. You're like, oh, you miraculously found $300,000. And I know we've discussed it and whatnot, but and I know there's a way out of it. And now we know it in season two. And I will watch it because I watched enough of it to get back into it. But it wasn't, it's just not quite as deep there. And that's why I jumped into Reservation Dogs. I was literally just going to go cancel my Hulu account. And I was like, well, I got to watch The Bear. And I really do want to watch Reservation Dogs. So I'll get through that and then get back to it. Quick take on Reservation Dogs. I know some of our like critics that we like are hugely into it. I haven't started it. Are you far enough to be like, dude, you need to get in on this? Not far enough. I've only got two episodes in. Um, and those two episodes, though, I am really like and I can see it. But it's also kind of slow in developing, um, I, which I think is going to be a benefit in the long run as uh, as it starts to develop. It's not like this hyper fast paced show, even though it's a 30 minute show. It's not like just crushing through the storylines uh, as almost like a typical set piece Um of what are we episodic 30 minute shows that are on standard TV. I don't even know. It feels like this is a storyline that's going to be developed out through an entire season. Mm -hmm. So, okay. um, but otherwise right now I can, I can see the, the seeds of why people we respect like it so much. Uh -huh. Okay. Quick commentary, any books? Let's go to books. Um, I really enjoyed, it was a super simple read, um, but I really enjoyed The Comfort Crisis. Um, I don't know if we've talked about it, but it's a uh, book that recently came out. Um, essentially the way I would describe it is it, it was, um, describes why I and a lot of people around us like type two fun and how beneficial that it is for health and psychology and all that. So, okay. The comfort zone. Yeah. Cool. My quick word, I'm reading because our boy Jeremy Strong mentioned this after the oh, yeah. after the succession finale. I've had so many people mention this, but it's Andre Agassi's oh, autobiography Open. Yeah, it's so good. I read that. And everybody like says that. And I was like, okay. So good. So I'm reading it now and learning a lot, but I'm not yet like why is the whole world obsessed with this book? It's good. But I'm I'm still yeah. figuring. I mean, you know, learning. By the way, the punchline: Agassi kind of hates tennis. That was news to me. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No. It's a. I think it was a pretty critical moment in autobiographies of being a bit more open. That's huh. what I look at it as. It was kind of groundbreaking. I mean, he goes into things like meth addiction and whatnot. And so I haven't you know, gotten there yet. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So. 
No, okay. it's really good. But um, all right, my kid is actually right. crying now. I gotta go get him. Um, Do it. We did our time, but that was enjoyable. <laughs> it was. Um, hey, man, appreciate it. Have a good time off. We'll be talking. Sounds good. See you, Jonathan. Bye. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks so much, as always, to Cody for another great conversation. Thanks so much to you for listening and for your interest in these broader topics. Thanks again to those of you who have submitted certain stories to make sure they're on our radar and for the really excellent and thoughtful questions about relationships and mountain town stuff and that kind of thing. Finally, if you are, in fact, enjoying these conversations, and look, I know, folks, many thousands of you are, we would really appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. That's on Spotify or Apple or whatever. But let us know that you are appreciating conversations like this, and that will just help us keep this whole thing going and growing All right, everybody, thanks so much, and we will talk to you again real soon.